Today's reading is from chapter 3 of John's first letter. For this is the message you have heard from the beginning. We should love one another, unlike Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his deeds were evil and his brothers were righteous. Do not be surprised, brothers and sisters, if the world hates you. We know that we have passed from death to life because we love our brothers and sisters. The one who does not love remains in death. Everyone who hates his brother or sister is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life residing in him. This is how we have come to know love. He laid down his life for us. We should also lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. If anyone has this world's goods and sees a fellow believer in need but withholds compassion from him, how does God's love reside in him? Little children, let us not love in word or speech, but in action and in truth. This is how we will know that we belong to the truth and will reassure our hearts before him whenever our hearts condemn us. For God is greater than our hearts and he knows all things. Dear friends, if our hearts don't condemn us, we have confidence before God and receive whatever we ask from him because we keep his commands and do what is pleasing in his sight. Now this is his command, that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another as he commanded us. The one who keeps his commands remains in him, and he in him. And the way we know that he remains in us is from the spirit he has given us. The word of the Lord. Now, friends, we are continuing our journey through the book of, uh, or the letter, the first letter of John, and today we are in chapter 3, uh, in these verses 11 to 24. Now, as we've seen over the last couple of weeks, uh, John, 1 John is a really provocative letter, and it really forces us to stare face to face into our own issues. You know, in chapter 1, we saw how John calls, uh, uh, calls us in the start of his book to live a life of testimony. We, have been, we were reminded that, you know, we, we've been called out of darkness and into God's glorious light as his believers. And so as a result, we should now shine out that light into the world. If, John says, if you want to be a Christian, then your changed life because of Jesus should be evident to all. And if the people around you can't see that you are a Christian, well, then you actually need to take a good, long, hard look at yourself and wonder whether or not perhaps it is time to make some changes. Then in chapter 2, we saw that John uh, is very concerned with the kinds of teaching that had been infiltrating the church uh, that existed in the days in which he wrote this letter. You see, all these false teachers had been coming into the church and they were starting to teach things that were contrary to the free gift of salvation that Jesus offers to all. And so he reminds his readers that if they are to have fellowship with God, that is, if they wanted to be saved, then they actually had to stick to the pure and true preaching and teaching that the apostles gave. 
And we saw that this had direct implications for the way we live our lives. You know, we can't just listen to whatever big teacher we, we find, you know, on the internet. And we can't just get swayed by every wind of theological error that wafts our way. No, in fact, salvation, our very place in God's, uh, as God's children, is dependent on us believing the gospel truth as it is written in scripture and taught by the apostles. And then last week we saw that this has real radical implications for our lives because we have been called by Jesus himself and by scripture in 1 John to abide in Christ. We saw that this meant that in our days this often looks a lot more to clinging like Jesus as the rock in the ocean of chaos in the world around us. And it means that we stubbornly refuse to bend to the whims of this world and will stick to, cling to, the truth of Scripture even when everyone else tells us that we're wrong. And we're going to do this precisely because we know that Jesus is coming back and he is coming to judge the world and bring his kingdom to fruition and on that day we will be vindicated as those who are on the right side of history. And so John, yeah, it's, uh, 1 John is, is a book that is pretty confronting. It's pretty in your face. It, uh, it tells us some pretty provocative things. Now when we get to chapter 3, we see that John actually isn't finished with these sorts of teachings uh, with the hard-hitting stuff. Because today he's talking about what does Christian love look like? And he actually makes a contrast. It says you either love or you hate. You either have the love of Christ or you are a murderer, like, um, you know, Cain. And it is a little bit funny. I think it's right to laugh at that. Uh, but it's, it's also kind of tragic at the same time. Because what he's dealing with here is, uh, you know, our very essence, the core identity of who we are as Christian people. Like, what are we supposed to be like? Who are we supposed to be as God's people? And we saw that in our reading that we are called to be these people of love, right? Now I'd like to suggest to you that John makes a very strong point here and that he says that actually there are, there are many kinds of people that love. There's kind of a worldly love uh, that you know, is the same as murder. And then there's a Christian love, which is the love that Jesus shows us. And so I think John is making the point, or at least we can infer, that John is saying that Christians are the only people who can truly love the way that Jesus intends, the way that God designed love to work. Only the Christian can truly love. Only Christians have the capacity to truly show love the way the Bible intends it. Now, is that true? Is that true? Is it true that only Christians have the capacity to love? I mean, this is, a, uh, this is something we need to wrestle with. So let's have a look. The first thing I, I, I think we should consider is what is the difference between worldly love and true love as John defines it here? What's the difference between normal love and Christian love, if you like? So what is true love? The reality is that people of all cultures everywhere love, express love, you know. Uh, people love their husbands, they love their wives, they love their children and their friends and so on. Love is part of being human. But there is a big difference between worldly love and the love that is described in our passage. Worldly love and true love, if you like. You see, worldly love is ultimately self-focused. Maybe not self-centered, but it is at least self-focused. Um, evolutionary biologists put it this way. This is from an article published uh, in the University of California's magazine. And they say this, love is like signing a lease. 
I'm quoting now. Why do people agree to years-long leases for apartments? After all, a tenant might soon find a better apartment and the landlord could find a better tenant. The answer is that searching for the perfect apartment or tenant is such an annoying and costly process that both parties are better off making a long-term commitment to an imperfect but sufficient lease. The signed lease agreement provides the crucial bond, keeping the temptation of other options from ruining their useful arrangement. Now, human beings face nearly identical commit, uh, a nearly identical commitment problem when it comes to choosing a partner. Humans likely evolved to primarily favour monogamous relationships that last at least as long as is necessary for them to co-parent the children. Given this commitment's magnitude, there's plenty of motivation to get it right by finding the best possible partner. However, searching for an ideal partner is a resource-intensive and challenging problem. That is, dating sucks. To solve the commitment problem and to successfully pass down your genes, it is generally better not to endlessly chase perfection, but to instead commit to a partner that is just good enough. Thus, Evolution may have created love as a biological lease agreement, both solving the commitment problem and providing an intoxicating reward for finding that solution. In other words, the reason we love is because it simply ensures that we find a good enough partner with whom we can pass on our genes. The reason we love our children is primarily because within them lives our DNA. And so we're hardwired to love them, they say, to protect them and so on, even at the cost of our own lives, because ultimately they carry forth our DNA. They, ca they carry our genes, even when we die. And so it's not self-centered. You know, people are quite capable of sacrificing themselves for the sake of the, of the tribe or of their children. But it's still self-focused in the sense that it is there because we need to pass on our genes. So the reason family ties, blood, is, is thicker than water uh, and reason family ties are stronger than friendship ties is because uncle, aunt, grandma, grandpa, they share in common a sense of DNA with the child and therefore they are hardwired, we're hardwired as a member of the family to look after them, to love them, to protect them so that the family genes can be passed on. That is the working model we have for why we love at least worldly. We love, perhaps even sacrificially, because a parent might sacrifice themselves for a child because of the DNA. But that love is ultimately self-focused. And we love so that we can live on in the life of the child, so that our genes can be passed on. We love our husband and wife because it's a useful arrangement to a good enough person that increases the chance of our survival. Makes me wonder how these same researchers would explain same-sex love. But whatever. But that is worldly love. But boy, how meaningless and pitiful, really. Isn't that a sad and decrepit picture for what it means to love? And the thing is that this kind of love, humanistically speaking, is in essence, always going to be exploitative of other people outside of your tribe, outside of your gene group, if you like. If that love is driven by and promoted uh, by your need to pass on your genes, well, you're going to kind of do whatever it takes to keep that DNA going, isn't it? 
It means even if you're going to be selfish, you're going to trample on everyone else in the, in the corporate ladder, so to speak, so that you have the best chance of passing on your genes. You have the most resources to give to your children. It's going to exploit the environment around you, taking resources from others so that your gene group can survive. Perhaps that is why famous philosopher and songwriter Hathaway says it this way, What is love? Baby, don't hurt me. Don't hurt me no more. Love and hurt go hand in hand when all we have is human love, humanistic kind of this evolutionary love. Love your own means hurting others so that your own can survive. That is survival of the fittest. And the only reason why we don't universally experience this more hurtfully is because we have laws in our land that prevent people from doing more harm than good. Worldly love is ultimately self-focused, but that is a completely different picture to what John paints for us here in 1 John 3. He says, the Christian is the only one who can truly love because it's not that kind of love. Christian love, true love, God's love, biblical love, if you like, is completely different in nature. It's not self-focused. It's not concerned with the propagation of your genes and DNA. God-focused love is completely different in that it is entirely outwardly focused. Listen how scripture here defines love. In verse 16, This is how we have come to know love. He laid down his life for us. And so we should lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. If anyone has the world's good and sees a fellow believer but, uh, in need but withholds compassion from him, how does God's love reside in him? Little children, let us not love in word or speech, but actually in action and truth. That is the standard. Countercultural, other-focused love. Love that looks to the needs of the other person at the cost of yourself. True love, biblical love, em uh, empties itself for the sake of the other person. It requires, actually, that the lover puts aside what they deserve, what, what is rightfully theirs, what would protect their own in order to love. It lays aside status and right and privilege in order to love the other person. And how do we know that? Because this is what Christ has done for us. He empties himself of his glory. As the other great philosopher and songwriter says, he is the light of the world who stepped down into darkness he is the king of all days who is so highly exalted, glorious in heaven above, and humbly he came to the earth he created, and all for love's sake became poor. This is what Jesus does for us. He kind of puts aside his kingship, his glory, his 
position in heaven as the highest exalted one. And he puts it all down and humbly comes for love's sake and becomes poor to us. He lays aside his status, his right for all of creation to bow down before him, the right of all of, all of creation to worship him. He lays that aside in order to love those who hated him, in order to save and he not only empties himself of, uh, of his glory when he comes and is born as a baby, you know, in a stable, and we just talked about that at Christmas time. His whole life is lived in humility as a man who has no home, no place to lay his head. And then, as if that was not enough, the king of all days, oh so highly exalted, went and dies in the most horrible place, and he took God's wrath on himself for us, for, his, for our sins. So not only does he empty himself of his own glory, he fills himself up with our dishonour, our anti-glory, if you like. Because that's what true love looks like. There is no DNA promulgation in that. There's no humanistic love in that. That, friends, is what true love looks like. It is sacrificial and it costs. And it is that kind of love that you and I are called to. This is how we have come to know love, that he laid down his life for us. And we, in response, should love, uh, lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. This is God's word. This is love that only a Christian can show. You know, when we read these verses, and, and when you read verse 23 and 24, John actually connects this kind of love with the work of the Holy Spirit. It is something that can only happen in the life of a Christian. And this is absolutely something only a believer can do. And it is only a Christian who can love like Christ loved, because it is only the Christian who has been so loved by the love of Christ. And this is what Christian love, biblical love, looks like. And so then how do we do it? Practically, what does that look like? How do we do it? Well, John shows us that actually this is something we need to learn. This is not something that happens naturally for us. I read verse 11. Uh, for this is the message you have heard from the beginning. We should love one another. Now, I find that fascinating. The verse 11 is, is fascinating for me because it says this is the message you heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. Now, what is the beginning that John is talking about here? It's not the beginning of the world. It's not the beginning of time. It's the beginning of the Christian's life. It's the beginning of faith. It's the kind of catechism teaching that new believers would have gone through. And one of the first things uh, what that happens is they are taught that you should love. So John is here writing to a church of essentially immature Christians. You know, they've, they may have been believers for some time, but the fact that be, they're being swayed by these false teachers shows that in some ways they are still very immature Christians. They still had a long way to go spiritually. But to these immature Christians, he writes, you know this stuff already. This is baby Christian stuff. You've heard this from the beginning, that we should love one another. Now, realize what this means. It means, you know, you're to live like Christ, sacrifice yourself. 
Love like this is one of the first things that Christians were taught. One of the most fundamental things they had to learn when they came to faith. Christians are different from the rest of the world. The rest of the world loves their own, but you are to love those who are different to you. And that's precisely why Christians are to be different from the rest of the world. They are to be these people of sacrificial love. And it's kind of staggering, really, that they had to be taught that. But here is the truth of the matter. If you look to the person on your left, and then the person on your right, and then in the mirror, all three of you are hard to love. Because all three of you have been misshapen by sin. And that's just the people in this church. I mean, we come from relatively similar kind of cultural backgrounds, don't we? We share interests with one another. Um, and if we're honest, we might even kind of like the person who sits on our left or right. Uh, maybe not the one on the right, but at least the one on the left. But definitely the one in the mirror, right? We kind of like these people. So they're easy, relatively speaking, to love. These are people that are like us. It's actually not that hard to love them because it's not really that hard to love people that are like us. But that's not what was going on for these early Christians. Look at these earliest Christians, Jesus' own followers, his disciples. We had pig-headed old Simon Peter. We had James and John, the sons of thunder, and I don't think they were called that because they were gentle and easy to get along with dudes. You had Matthew, who was a tax collector, someone with whom, who the Jewish people would have considered a traitor to the Jewish people, a spy perhaps for Rome. And then you had Simon the Zealot. He was part of the faction of the Jewish people who were so against Rome's rule that you would probably classify them as Jewish terrorists today. And then you had Judas Iscariot, Jesus' own betrayer. And yet Christ loved them all. And he washed their feet. And he expected them to love each other. These are people who were enemies outside of Christ. People who stood at completely opposite ends of the political and social spectrums. Spectra? Spectra. That's just his disciples. As the word of Jesus spread, as people came to faith, more and more and more people came into the early church, which became this melting pot of different cultures with different people who would be otherwise wildly opposed to one another. And it seems that one of the first things these Christians had to learn, had to be taught is, these old enemies of, you, of yours, they are now your brothers and sisters and you are to love them as such. This is something that does not come naturally, something we have to learn. And it's something we have to learn because we've been living, a new Christian has been living for their entire life under the worldly system of love, this vision of love that really um, it's, it's kind of self-focused in the long run. And so when you become a Christian, you are to learn this, to learn how to live sacrificially like this. So what does this then actually look like in practice? We've seen that this kind of love is defined by Christ. It is an emptying of self for the sake of the other person. In response to that, we come to now love like Jesus. This is something we have to learn. So how does that look? What does that actually look like in practice? Well, the New Testament actually gives us a very robust view of what this kind of love looks like. Even if you just 
do a cursory paging through the New Testament writings, it shows you how we can love our brothers and sisters in Christ. The first thing we need to do is we need to recognise that this is actually a command that Jesus gives us, gives us in John chapter 13, where Jesus says, A new command I give you, you are to love one another. As I have loved you, you are to love one another. This sacrificial love that Jesus shows is not something that is optional for a Christian. Us putting the well-being of our brothers and sisters first is not an optional thing. It is part of what it means to follow Jesus. Ephesians chapter 4 verse 32 tells us that we are to forgive one another. You know, be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other just as Christ forgave you. Forgiveness is a key aspect of love. It requires you to let go of the grudge you hold, the resentments you hold over your brothers and sisters for things they've done to you which hurt you. It means that we bear one another's burdens. Galatians uh, 6 verse 2. Carry each other's burdens and in this way you will fulfill the law of Christ. It shows us that Christians are to support one another during difficult times. We share in the emotional and physical burdens of one another, which incidentally means we should also actually share the emotional burdens and physical burdens we have with one another. We can't carry each other's burdens unless we know they exist. Secrecy in the church is actually not something that should exist. You can't carry a burden you don't know is there. We are to encourage one another, build one another up. 1 Thessalonians 5 verse 11. Uh, Therefore, encourage one another, build one another up, just in fact as, uh, as you are in fact doing. Offering words of encouragement, of hope, of affirmation is part of what it means to love the church. Again, Galatians 5.13, serve one another humbly in love. Christian love is, involves acts of service, helping in practical ways that genuinely care for your brother or sister. James 5.16 tells us that we are to pray for one another. Praying for one another is a powerful way of, of loving another person because it brings their needs before God. It lifts them up before God. Hebrews 13.2, you know, don't forget to show hospitality to strangers. Or to speak the truth in love, as Ephesians 4.15 says. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head, that is Christ. Loving each other means we, we need to, to have these courageous conversations. We can't avoid difficult topics. Love actually means we risk the relationship. We have to go there for the sake of the other person. And our love is to be unconditional. Jesus does not love you because you're so wonderful. He loves you because he's so wonderful. And we are to follow in that kind of love, loving regardless of what the other person's status is or, or their actions are towards you. These are expressions of what it means to be Christian love. And you know what, friends? For these things, you get absolutely nothing in return. You don't get something when you forgive someone. It doesn't pass on your DNA and genes when you practice hospitality. You are giving of yourself on your home for the sake of another person. It doesn't propagate your DNA when you pray for someone else giving your time and devotional space for the sake of people who might frankly be your enemies. That doesn't get you anything. 
It doesn't help you to love unconditionally, just like Jesus' love is unconditional. In fact, it costs you something because you get nothing in return for it. But we do these things not because we get anything out of it. It doesn't propagate our DNA, but it does grow God's kingdom, not our kingdom. It grows, in a sense, God's tribe and his genes, if you will, not our own. It costs us, but it's an investment in God's kingdom. So this is the framework of how we are to love one another. So then how do we respond? Let me leave you with this one thought. This is a good time to take stock, to think about what aspects of loving one another you want to work on, because none of us are perfect in this. It's a time for us to think and ask the question, do I love, truly, do I show this kind of true love to those around me? And then as the Holy Spirit convicts you of the areas in which you need to improve, make this your prayer. Dear Lord, I want to work on insert area here. Will you help me with that? And then we can actually do what Scripture says. This is the message we have heard from the beginning. We are to love one another. And this is how we have come to know love. That he laid down his life for us, and so we should also lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. Will you pray that prayer with me now? Let's pray. Lord, again, we are this morning confronted with um, just the magnitude of your love for us, for what you have done for us in Jesus. We, Lord, we, uh, we recognise that we have done nothing to deserve your love, that you have given of yourself unconditionally, that you came to earth to love your enemies and while we were still your enemies you died for us in our place, taking our sins on your shoulders and dying in our place, making the way clear for us to be adopted as children of God. But Lord, we want to live out of that. We want to be transformed by that reality and we recognise that this is something that we have to learn. This is, there's a lifelong process of learning in this. And we pray that even this morning, as we again reflect on the standard that you put before us in Jesus, we pray that you will help us to take our next step. Even as the Holy Spirit has convicted us of one particular area, perhaps this morning, that we can work on, we pray that right now, through your Holy Spirit, you will start to work on that in our hearts, on us today. We pray this in Jesus' mighty name. Amen.